What's up, future PTAs? I have a quick announcement to make before we get started with today's episode. On Sunday, April 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be hosting a free masterclass webinar to help give students the blueprint they'll need in order to take all of the stress and anxiety out of studying for the boards and also provide students with the structure they'll need to absolutely crush the NPTE. Sign up for free down in the link below in the show notes. Now on to the show. All right, guys. So today we are going over cauda equina syndrome. So cauda equina means horse's tail. So we'll get into it so then we can see what it's like. But essentially, it's going to be any sort of compression injury to the nerves that are below the L1 level of the spinal cord. So let's get into it. So remember, this is one of our incomplete spinal cord injuries, along with stuff like central cord and anterior cord and bronchocards and posterior cord. So this is one of the big five that isn't a complete spinal cord injury because the boards is not going to ask you like patient has a L1 incomplete spinal cord injury. Like what's going on? No, it they'll describe it as cauda equina, something like that. They won't be weird and have it be weird levels of sensation. And remember for a complete spinal cord injury, that will be listed as an Asia scale A on the board. So let's get into it. So cauda equina syndrome. So anatomy. So this is my lovely picture from complete anatomy. Excellent resource. If you want to use it, it's an app on your phone, iPad, fantastic. So anatomy associated with cauda equina syndrome. Remember at the L1 spinal cord level, we have this thing right here. So you can see that this at the L1 is uh, called the conus medullaris. And this is essentially the end of that true spinal cord. After that, it starts to branch off into all of these different nerve bundles and nerve um, little like axons coming out of the spinal cord. And essentially at that point, it's not really a true L1, L2 ends up just being a cluster of nerves. So that cluster ends up kind of looking like a horse's tail. So that is why it's called cauda, cauda equina. So remember the conus medullaris extends all the way down to the L1 level. And after that, it's just all the nerves and everything. So some things that we need to know when it comes to anatomy for cauda equina syndrome is that we need to understand our dermatomes and myotomes, understanding like where like the L1 level of compression, L2 kind of levels are, like that sensation along the anterior thigh, down into the big toe, all the way through those dermatomes of sensation, because we're going to notice that the patient might start to lose sensation along the anterior thigh and then start losing feeling in their feet. And that would be definitely indicative of cauda equina. Understanding the myotome. So remember the L1 level is more like hip flexor kind of thing into like L2 hip flexor, stuff like that. Uh, the quads are going to be L2 through L4. Um, and then understand that L4 is going to be our dorsiflexors. And then L5 is going to be our great toe extensor. So EHL. And then when we get into um, S1, that's going to be like plantar flexors. And then S2, S3 is into our hamstrings. And then our S4 S5 is more like your perineal area into your sacral um, reflexes for bowel and bladder. So that's kind of the breakdown of lower extremity stuff. So if anything like that starts going awry and starts getting worse, we're starting to think cauda equina syndrome. Um, sensory information to the lower extremities, as I said as well, bowel and bladder, innervation of most motor uh, things in the lower extremities. So again, kind of went over all the spark notes version of everything, but this can really mess up your legs. This can really mess up your legs and bowel and bladder. So let's get into the etiology. So how is this happening? So this is a nice MRI image and MRI is how they're going to diagnose it um, of like somebody who has cauda equina syndrome. So we can see like down here, it's their S1 
And then we got L5, L4, L3, L2. So we're kind of in that like L3, L2 kind of area. Um, and so that would constitute as a Aquinas syndrome due to like what's going on. They also have a bulging disc down here at the L5S1. So yeah, this person's getting messed up down here. So essentially what it is, any sort of comp nerve compression at the L1 level or lower. So remember we can compress nerves in many ways. The most common one we're seeing is a disc herniation. Um, and then we have spinal stenosis, definitely like number two. Um, any sort of like trauma, which can include like gunshot wound, fall wounds in general, fractures and stuff like that. Anything that's going to crush and squish the spinal cord in any sort of way, that's kind of going to end up causing cotoquina, especially if it's at the L1 level or lower. Remember at different levels of the spinal cord, we're seeing different problems. So this is specific to L1 or lower. Um, uh, spinal tuberculosis. So any sort of like, you know, um, pathologies, honestly, like osteomyelitis might even cause this just like inflammation of the spinal cord and like inflammation of the surrounding vertebral bodies, anything like that, if there's infection getting there, that's going to cause problems. And then if there's a tumor, that's going to just continue to grow and that's going to start to squish onto the spinal cord itself. So here's the thing, guys, if we're seeing any just new onset of neurological symptoms that can't be explained by something. So let's say the person's losing sensation in their feet and it's not like they're it's not like there's somebody who like their diabetes is out of control and they like never pay attention or it's not like they have like a neuroma so like the little like benign like um tumors that end up just causing problems with like sensation and stuff like that if it can't if the neurological symptoms cannot be explained by something else that's in the chart we're gonna go refer out start looking at stuff because we do not want neurological symptoms to continue to get worse because then we're putting the risk at, of the patient to become paralyzed. So that's the big thing. This is a big red flag kind of thing where we refer out and we have the patient go get help. So again, when it comes to the etiology of how cauda syndrome ends up, it's just compression of the spinal cord, some point below L1, most likely disc herniation. So what does it look like? I am not sure why this is this color, but this is going to be just kind of showing you the big um, red flags. So the biggest red flag that you're going to see when it comes to cauda equina syndrome. So like you could have like different like losses of sensation, stuff like that, that could be explained by like diabetes or something like that. But the biggest thing that's going to show a differential diagnosis when it comes to cauda equina syndrome is the patient's going to start to lose control of their bowel and bladder. That is the biggest red flag. And that means that the nerve is super squished and we're starting to put the patient at risk of paralysis because remember the sacral, um, the sacral nerve roots are the lowest level. So that is like the S3 through S5 kind of like, this is the bottom of the spinal cord. If the bottom of the spinal cord is not working, we got problems all the way upstream. We're going to start seeing tons of issues. And this means that the nerve is super, super squished. So we really got to send somebody to the, uh, the neurological person, like neurologist, or even to the ER or something like this is bad. Um, so we're referring out when we're starting to see that. And when the boards is asking about this, they're going to use loss of control of bowel and bladder to indicate that this is definitely cauda syndrome and not something else like, you know, peripheral neuropathy due to diabetes or a disc herniation at like some level. No, this is going to be like specifically this specific type of like problem. So again, in this picture here, we do have a herniated disc or something like that, but we understand that it's much, much more than that. It's causing a whole syndrome of neurological problems. Again, as I went down before, altered sensation in the lower extremities is either pins and needles, numbness, something like that, burning sensation, um, just not being aware of like, where is my foot? I can't feel it kind of thing. Um, they'll start tripping. They'll have functional impairments. They'll start having difficulty walking, stuff like that. 
um, that might be a runner and then all of a sudden start tripping on stuff and whatnot. And again, remember the loss of bowel and bladder is where showing that difference between is this like onset of ALS or is this cotoquina syndrome? So we're losing bowel and bladder, cotoquina. That's where the boards is going to start asking you differences between things. So different types of neurological conditions, which one is it? Cotoquina or losing bowel and bladder. Back pain. So just in general with any sort of like herniation, you might have back pain, any sort of problem with the spinal cord might refer all the way up to the back and might refer ridiculously. And that's why we're seeing the different sensation, and everything. Abnormal reflexes. They could be hyper, they could be hypo, just something that's like seeming like mm, something's off, especially if it's different between the two sides. Um, sexual dysfunction kind of goes along with that loss of control of bowel and bladder, same nerve roots are intervening um, the penis and the vagina. So if we're having issues with sexual dysfunction, we're also leaning towards catechonic. Because remember those sacral nerve roots, that means that we got lots of problems upstream, guys. That means we got lots of problems upstream. And then in general, just decreased strength. Like all of a sudden they're like, I can't lift my leg up as much as I used to. Like, I feel like I'm getting weak and weak. And this can either progress. Here's the thing about catechonic syndrome. It can either progress super rapidly. And like, you're like, oh Lord. Or it could slowly like insidiously onset. Like you just think, oh, maybe I'm just losing some strength, blah, blah, blah. It's that's the bad part. And I have this in big capital letters, underline bolded. I have it everything but highlighted. Um, refer out to neurology. So this might need to be treated by like surgery or something like that because it's it's not not good at all. So worst case scenario when it's surgery, another case scenario, we might need to do some sort of other intervention to get this under control, maybe some steroid injections, not, not steroid injections, but like, you know, different sort of injections to help calm down the inflammation in the area. We, we might, we need help. We need to bring in the big guns. So we're sending these people to neurology because if we don't, they could permanently lose sensation in their lower extremities or even function and end up being wheelchair bound. And that's the last thing we want is her discrimination to cause somebody to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. So the sooner we can get this seen by a neurologist and the problem solved, the sooner we can get this patient back to doing the things that they want to do. And as I said before, an MRI is going to show what's going on. So we can see definitely here, it looks like this person had straight up a fracture the vertebral body like that really doesn't look good um and then this picture we see that they had a herniated disc but the mri will look like this so uh again another thing that the boards might say and they might just throw this in there as like just a ooh, keyword kind of thing to make you also think autoquina syndrome is that children with spinal birth defects are at risk of this as well so like somebody who has spina bifida, spina bifida uh, occulta, so that's the one where you, it doesn't bulge out, it's just like a hairy kind of indent, that person could be more at risk too, just because they have, in general, spinal problems with the spinal cord itself not forming correctly. So again, this person's at risk, but remember, biggest thing, bowel and bladder how are we treating it? So as I said before, immediately refer out to neurology. We need this person to get seen and fixed as soon as possible because we are not neurosurgeons. <laughs> so we're going to let somebody else do this job. We'll, we'll take it over on the back end. We'll get the baton later, but we're going to pass the baton to them for now. Um, possible surgical intervention, as I said before, if it's a tumor or something like that. So if it's not like a disc herniation or some like weakness of the annulus fibrosis or something, they're probably getting like, um, uh, some sort of chemo radiation to address their tumor or try to shrink it down to keep it from pushing on the spinal cord. Again, understand that our cancer patients have other um, contraindications, restrictions, and precautions when it comes to therapy. So just being aware of that because it could be that. 
Um, and then understanding that this patient's probably going to be more fatigued and then making sure that we're taking frequent rest breaks and working on strength and conditioning. PT-related interventions for Cotoquinus syndrome is it's going to be depend on how much function is lost. So it could be the patient's like catching it early and they just like have like some weakness on like one side or something like that, or that they're, they're like their hip flexors aren't as strong as they used to. So we'll just work with what we got. Um, if it is something where it comes to bowel and bladder problems, we are going to make sure that we're sending this person to um, pelvic floor physical therapy or some sort of other like gynecological management to help the patient with bowel and bladder retraining. So patient education is super important for helping them um, understand that and then get some independence back because that can be an embarrassing thing. So usually I'd say just send us to send them to a pelvic floor PT. They're super cool and they know a lot of fun stuff to do to help patients get some more independence with that and gain some more confidence. Working on their functional mobility and gait retraining. So it depends on how much function was lost. We might have to retrain this patient out of walk. So lots of ambulation and parallel bars, working on quad strengthening, working on just uh, hip extension, stuff like that, getting the dorsiflexors to uh, come up. They might need like an AFO or something like that for a little bit because they might have like foot drop really bad, but we're working with everything we can to get this patient back to normal. So assistive devices, if they need it, either it'll be a rolling walker, any sort of crutches, something along those lines, just cane, maybe just something to help them keep their balance because we don't want this patient falling. That would be, you know, just the cherry on top to all their other problems with loss of sensation and stuff like that. So sensory re retraining, if they've lost any sort of sensation. So again, just like having their feet feel different textures and everything to get sensation back, feeling how like different uh, materials feel rubbing on their legs and stuff, just to work on uh, just sensory retraining. So then they're not overwhelmed when their nerves start coming back, that it ends up being painful or something like that, or they're not feeling their foot at all to because sensory retraining is super important if we want them to walk to be able to feel that their foot's being placed on the ground and where it is and then just a general strength and re, strength and conditioning retraining kind of program so i'm sure you guys have had some patients come in the clinic and it just says general medical and it's just we get them with some aerobic training get some general strength and conditioning when it comes to you know kicks to the side kicks backwards marches working on hurdles ambulation you know just like overhead presses transfers to the stands all that stuff just working on getting everything back lower extremity wise just working on get them back to where they were and then a lot of biofeedback and e-sim can help with facilitating muscle contraction. So the e-sim, we can put it on Russian or NMES, so neuromuscular, re neuromuscular electrical stimulation is NMES. And that can help uh, get the e-sim itself can help the muscles start firing again. So like, you know, with quad sets, working on like lifting the leg, working on, um, you know, dorsiflexing the foot, stuff like that, helping the patient, you know, work alongside that. And then biofeedback as well to sense electrical activity to help the patient visually see like, okay, I'm contracting, I'm contracting. I got it. So that's kind of what's going on when it comes to how we're treating Cauda Aquinas syndrome, just getting them back to wherever they are, seeing, working from the baseline, working with what we got and working them to where we need to be. So um, keywords I want you guys to think about is loss, and loss of bowel and bladder. That is the big one. That is where we're like, okay, this is, of all the differential diagnoses, cauda equina, loss of bowel and bladder. Like if you don't get anything else out of this, 
that's a big one. You're probably good with at least one question on the boards. Uh, the L1 level or below. So remember, that's where the conus medullaris ends and then it becomes the cauda equina. So understanding that if the nerve is compressed at the L1 level or below, that would be cauda equina syndrome if it's kind of falling under the category of all the other sort of signs and symptoms that we're looking at. Loss of sensation in the legs. Again, remember some of these things can't be taken in isolation because it could indicate like just peripheral neuropathy from diabetes or something like that, or like foot drop post-surgical, but understanding that, okay, this is a bigger problem. It's coming from the spine, difficulty walking or ambulating. And I will say this is like the new onset of difficulty walking or ambulating and new onset of loss of sensation, new onset of loss of bowel and bladder, like they were good before. And then all of a sudden, oh, we're going south real quick with no rhyme or reason. That's what we're talking about. Back pain, just because it's re referring to the back in general. And then again, uh, patients who have a history of spinal birth defects, such as spina bifida, that would also indicate that there could be an issue with cauda syndrome in the future. So um, let's go on to the sample question. A physical therapist assistant is helping a patient recover from surgery following for cauda equina syndrome. The patient has been doing well with functional retraining and is able to navigate stairs safely and walk while using their single point cane. The patient states that they sometimes involuntarily void urine. What should the physical therapist assistant do first? One, Kegels with biofeedback. Two, patient education on bowel and bladder retraining. Three, electrical stimulation to perineal area to stimulate sphincter contraction or four adductor ball squeeze. So I'll give you guys a second to think about that. If All right, guys. So the answer is patient education on bowel and bladder retraining. So the key of the word is what should the physical therapist assistant do first? Okay. So we're working with this patient and uh, they're doing pretty well. They're working on stairs again. They're kind of getting back to normal. They had surgery. They're doing well. We got, we're getting back to where they go, but they are still noticing some problems with uh, unplanned urination essentially. So they're sometimes involuntarily voiding urine. So what are we doing first? So we noticed that they're still having a problem with this. So, okay, would Kegels with biofeedback be a good idea? Possibly if it's due to um, like stress incontinence and that's why it's happening or just sphinct sphincter incompetence in general, um, that might help with the you know pelvic floor muscles. Um, electrical stimulation to the perineal area to stimulate sphincter contraction. Okay, if that's the issue, that might be a good one too. We would do that. Adductor ball squeeze, you know, squeezing balls. That's never a bad thing. But this asks what we should do first. So we notice the patient having this uh, issue. And we notice, we know why. It's because they had cauda equina and they're having some incompetency of their sphincters due to the lack of innervation. So the first thing we do with patients when something is going awry before we do anything with them is we educate them on what's going on and we educate them on possible you know, pelvic floor PT, stuff like that, things we can do, what we're going to do going, what we're going to do going forward, because that is informed consent. Making sure the patient is aware of what's going on, is educated on the possible side effects, the you know, pros and cons, what we're doing, what's going on. And then they're like, okay, sounds like a good idea. 
we want to educate our patients before we do things. So I know that we aren't doing the initial evaluation when it comes to treating patients, but when the therapist is doing the initial evaluation before they even do any exercises with them, they say, okay, here's our plan going forward. This is what I want us to do. They explain to them what's, what's going on with their situation and they make them feel more confident and in control. So then they can consent to like, okay, this makes sense why you're doing the things that we do. We want to educate our patients first before we do anything else especially when it's something like this. So educating them on like, you know, different types of ways we can retrain the bladder, different exercises we could do, educating them that they might need to go to a pelvic floor PT to, you know, learn how to do all this stuff with that biofeedback and stuff. So once we kind of explain to the patient what's going on, then we would start to implement some of these other things. You think like your patient is like, I'm struggling with stairs. And you're like, well, how about we work on some step, step ups today? I think that would be good to work on some strength. Oh yeah, sounds good. Same kind of thing when it comes to this. You're not just going to all of a sudden go in there and Kiko's with biofeedback. Remember, if we just slap things on a patient, their pants are down, what are we doing? So we want to make sure before we do anything, we educate them on what's going on because patient education is the most important thing for the patient. Also, we're not entirely sure of what exactly is causing it. Could it be spasticity that all of a sudden they're just involuntarily urine because the nerves are coming back and it's like, oh, what the heck is going on? Nope. We don't know, maybe Kegels and all the E-STEM might be not what the patient needs depending on what's going on. Is it a flaccid bladder that's has incompetent sphincters or is it a spastic bladder? We don't know. So as long as we educate the patient first that we're gonna work on some bowel and bladder retraining and then refer them to either pelvic floor PT or if we're a pelvic floor PT that we explain to them what we're gonna do next because we figure it's because we know what's going on, that's what we're doing. So I hope that this was helpful in explaining cauda equinus syndrome. Generally, the most important thing is just educating patients. Patients like to be explained to what's going on um, and it makes them feel more in control of their therapy. All right, guys, you guys have a lovely rest of your evening and I will see you guys in the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.